So friends, turn with me to the first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We are in the middle of a sermon series at College Church on cross and culture, and the reason why we're doing that is to help us with how we can apply the gospel gospel to uh, cultural matters and issues that we might face in our own personal lives in this day and in this age. And uh, this morning, we've come to the matter of race. Obviously, it needs hardly be said that race is a matter of friction in America. And nothing that I have read or researched in recent years, conversations with people, nothing has made me more angry than reading and researching about this matter of race. reading about the history of slavery, Native Americans, segregation, as well as all the events that have surrounded more recent traumas like that in Ferguson, Missouri. And then I have read with what I can only term grave astonishment at some of the justifications that in particular some southern preachers have used from pulpits in the past to defend racism and slavery. And I think it is worth communicating to you exactly what kind of gut-level impact doing a lot of research on this has had for me. And the only way I can describe it is that at times I have felt physically sick. It has made me want to vomit. And I've asked myself as I've been reading this, why on earth did I decide to preach on this matter? I mean, I get to set the schedule. I mean, you know. One friend who is an African-American preacher told me that the reason, in his view, why the problems have continued today is because racism goes back to the beginning of American history 
And as he put it to me, once something is in the foundation, you cannot get it out. Now, I cannot say that I understand all this. I don't think there is anyone who does. And to be honest, I have felt a bit like an alien the more I've looked into it. But here's my prevailing conviction. I am convinced that God's word, which created the whole universe, is able to do anything that he wants it to do. And so as I've been reading all the literature about racism and slavery, what I've wanted to hear from is what the Bible has to say. And so that's what we're going to try and do together this morning. We're going to first look at this foundational text in Genesis chapter 12, seek to understand how, what it means, and then what it says about race today, and then how that applies to our personal lives. So first, look down with me at Genesis chapter 12. Now, these few verses obviously occur in the middle of a story. And any time you are studying, whether at home or in church or in your personal life, a few verses of the Bible, it is important that you ask yourself, what comes before those verses? What comes after those verses? How does that fit into the story? Otherwise, you'll, you'll rip it out of context and not understand what it's really saying. The old phrase about this is that a, a text without a context is a pretext for a false proof text. So we need to understand it as it is in the story of the book of Genesis. And overall, the book of Genesis is a story of how God's blessing was lost and then begun to be regained. Lost and then regained, God's blessing. And the story so far is that God has made the entire world, chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. And he declared it good and blessed all his creation. But then humanity in our rebellion, in chapter 3, rejected God's rule and set up our own rule, and as a result, God's blessing was lost. According to the story of the book of Genesis, our experience now throughout the whole of the world is that we now all live in a world under the curse of our rebellion against God. That is the reality that you and I experience on a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute basis, according to the book of Genesis. Now, many people will say, you know, in a place like Wheaton, which seems so nice, I mean, you know, you can hardly get through a four-way stop because everyone is so nice, you know. After you, no, no, after you, just, just go, 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 no, no, really, after you, sorry. Okay, I'm just going to go. Um, it can be hard to believe uh, that we really do live under a curse when we live in Wheaton, and that can make us complacent. And not think that church and Bible study and the power of the gospel really matters that much. It's just a sort of cultural thing. Wheaton seems so perfect. Just wait until January. Or talk to a policeman. There's a lot that goes on behind closed doors. 
or visit a hospital. Or as everyone should, even as a teenager, at some point or other, visit a cemetery. Or talk to a pastor. Do not be surprised then when your life is not perfect. Should be an encouragement to you when you come in this door and in the doors of this church, you look around, everyone seems so perfect, and let me tell you that they are not, that we are not. Even church, which, as the old joke is among pastors, church would be great if it were not for the people. The curse. The curse was announced in Genesis chapter 3. And then it's emphasized actually in this first part of Genesis, the story, by being repeated five times in total before we come to the end of chapter 11. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 14, verse 17, chapter 4, verse 11, 8, verse 21, 9, verse 25. The curse is referenced five times before we come to our pivotal chapter 12. So the story so far is this. God spoke the world into existence, declared it blessed, but we rebelled, so now we live under a a curse. And now in this pivotal moment in the story in chapter 12, God speaks again. And once again, he declares blessing. And watch this, that blessing is repeated five times in these verses to emphasize that the five-time repeated curse in the first 11 chapters is now all going to be overwritten with blessing. That word blessing occurs more often in the book of Genesis than any other book in the Old Testament. And the vast majority of the use of blessing in the book of Genesis happens after chapter 12. This announced five-time repeated blessing in the first few verses to override the five-time reference blessing in the first 11 chapters now unrolls with blessing upon blessing upon blessing as God's plan to bless all nations begins to develop through Abraham. One hymn puts it well, joy to the world. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. It's all going to be overwritten with blessing. And so therefore, a Christian is to be a person of joy, for we know God's plan to remove the curse entirely. Perhaps you fear generational curses or behavioral curses or you feel like you're the victim of how your parents behave, parental curses or how your children are behaving or your your very biology feels cursed. All one day will be gone and overtaken with nothing but blessing. So here in chapter 12 comes a new opportunity to be blessed now, what does blessed mean? Does blessed mean being, uh, you know, owning a BMW or having a nice car? Or what does blessed mean? Blessed, therefore, in the context of Genesis, means to go back to live as God's people under the blessing of His rule in His place. 
And so here, blessing begins with hearing God's word and believing it. And so in chapter 12, God's new announcement of blessing begins with his word, go. It's a command, radical and simple, go. Abraham is to leave his country, his kindred or his family, his father's house and go to a land that God will show him. And Abraham receives the blessing only through faith. He has no idea even where he is going. It's all about faith, the story of Abraham. The ultimate test of Abraham's faith comes at the end of his life in chapter 22 when he is told to sacrifice Isaac, the child of this very promise. There in chapter 22, God gives Abraham exactly the same command to go as here in chapter 12. And so as the book of Hebrews interprets for us, all this means that by faith Abraham obeyed. So this story then, this beginning of the story in chapter 12, is not then telling us how to get guidance from God. It's not telling us that we must go somewhere or move physically or geographically. It is telling us to believe God's word. It's easy, isn't it, to believe the things in the Bible that you already agree with? What about the things that you don't? That will take faith. But if you believe... There comes blessing. And so here is the blessing. And God says in Abraham, to Abraham in verse 2, I'll make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So Abraham with Sarai, his wife, who could not have children, will become a great nation and have a great name. Unlike the people of the Tower of Babel in chapter 11 who said, let us make a name for ourselves... And ironically, made a bad name for themselves. God will now give a name to Abraham by his sovereign grace. So here's an application for those among us who are ambitious. Do not seek a name for yourself. If God wishes to give you a name, he will. And it will come with blessing, not curse. And so verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. And and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So the blessing of God now comes through the channel of Abraham. Outside of that channel, the whole world is still under the curse, whether it realizes it or not. But there is this protective blessing for God's people. How wonderful then it is to be a part of God's people. We live under his protective blessing. And in you, verse 3 concludes, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now I want to emphasize here that word families in the context of our sermon this morning. That word families is the same word used in chapter 10 of the nations uh, the table of nations from Noah that then spread over the whole world. So what Genesis is saying in its story is while all nations, uh, nations meaning not 
modern nation states, but what missionaries call people groups or clans or families or tribes, while all nations are under the curse because of our rebellion. Yet in Abraham, all nations will be blessed. And from this chapter 12 and this story of Genesis, God's plan to bless all nations on the face of the earth gradually unfolds throughout the whole Bible and is indeed now being offered to those all over the world. From pulpits like this one and individual conversations. The Apostle Paul explains how this is happening in Galatians chapter 3 in the New Testament. He says, the Scripture... Referring to this very scripture in Genesis, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles or the nations by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all nations be blessed. So in summary then, this text in the context of the story of Genesis and the story of the Bible means that God has a plan to bless all the nations of the world through the gospel, which is the good news that we can be saved by trusting in Jesus' death in our place on the cross. Now, what does that mean then for this matter of race that we're looking at together today? Well, what it means is that according to the Bible, the gospel is the solution to racism. The gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham that through the promise of God, all the nations will be blessed through faith in Christ. The gospel is God's plan for blessing all nations. So the solution to race problems in our world is the gospel. The gospel is the plan of God for blessing all nations. And therefore the gospel is the solution to any lack of blessing of those nations. Now before I develop that conclusion from this text and apply it more directly, I want to assert a counterpoint to ensure we have grasped how radical this biblical teaching is. And that counterpoint is the following. Where the nations of our world, remember nations being people groups, not nation states, where the nations of our world are not being blessed, remember understanding blessing biblically as living under the rule of God through the gospel of God, where the nations of our world are not being blessed, what that must mean is the gospel is either not being preached or not being believed. And I want to say that as strongly as I can because there is a so-called evangelical history of racism in the southern parts of the United States as well as in South Africa and elsewhere. True, in recent years, many denominations have rightly distanced themselves from that history and repented of it. 
But we still need to say that when someone is preaching racism, whatever they are preaching, it is not, by definition, the gospel. For the gospel is God's plan for blessing all nations, and racism, whatever it is, is not a plan to bless all nations. Therefore, when someone is preaching racism, while they may call themselves an evangelical, they are not then actually preaching the gospel, which brings up a further necessary clarification. That word evangelical, while given various political definitions by the media today, in its original sense means gospel people. If someone is an evangelical, they are a gospel person. That's what the word means. But if that person is preaching racism, they are not by definition preaching the gospel. For the gospel is God's plan to bless all nations And therefore, they are also not, by definition, acting as an evangelical. I will go further. And to be fair to the tortured history of African Americans and Native Americans and Jews under Nazism and Pakistanis in some parts of Britain, as well as, if we go far enough back in history, to pirates from North Africa who enslaved over a million European peoples in the 16th and 17th centuries. I think we must go further to make it crystal clear. While the ultimate destiny of any individual is in the hands of God, by the same token, the preaching or teaching of racism is not only a non-evangelical message, it is also by definition a non-Christian message. For the blessing of God for all nations through the blessing given to Abraham is now fulfilled in Christ. And therefore, someone is preaching racism, which is not a way to bless all nations. They are not preaching the Christian or the Christian message. Now, having ensured that I will then never be invited to a Ku Klux Klan gathering, and before I apply this to our personal lives, which of course we must do, I need to answer an objection, which is this. Surely, the history of the Christian church, as well as the practice of some Christians, disproves what you're saying. And my answer to that is that I am not saying that individual Christians or even some parts of the church have all been blameless in this regard. What I'm saying is that the gospel is the solution. And that gospel needs to be believed and preached in churches and among Christians too. And when it is, the gospel has precisely the impact that God has designed it to to have. Right back to Abraham and the blessing of God through his family to all nations at the time of the famine that took place when Joseph was in Egypt. Impartial fulfillment of this promise in chapter 12 was the means by which God gave all the nations all around food. And Joseph himself said, God planned this, that there will be the saving of many lives through to Ruth the Moabites, and her inclusion in the blessed family of God, indeed into the very genealogy, the family of Christ. 
to Christ and his commission to take the message to all nations, to the Ethiopian eunuch who took the gospel to Africa, to Augustine of Africa, and on and on to great Christian leaders like William Wilberforce and other great, if imperfect, leaders like Martin Luther King. So we've looked at the text and discovered that it teaches that God has a plan to bless all nations through the faithful obedience of one man, which according to Paul is the pre-preaching of the gospel fulfilled in Christ and our faith in him. We have seen that what that means for the problems of race in our world today is that the gospel is the solution. But then, of course, if that is the case, what does that mean practically by way of application in our own personal lives and communities today? Now, my dear friends, at this point, I would like to say that I have a perfectly formulated set of answers to that in nice, neat, logical order. But to be frank, I have found myself struggling with such a seething anger when I think about the application of this core part of the gospel to the matter of racism, that it has tended to bleed out of any neat, tidy categories. One of the questions I was asked last week in our question and answer session that we're doing in the evening service during this cross and culture series was this. Is there any place for anger when you are dealing with some of the abuses and difficulties that are going on in our world today? And what I said then was, as the Bible puts it, in your anger do not sin. In other words, we should assume that often our anger is wrong and be very careful before we give it any kind of foothold in our life. It could lead to bitterness. Anger is a virtue, righteous anger, but it is a dangerous virtue. And we should assume that most of the time the right response to issues that we come across in our own lives or other people's lives is not anger but patience, kindness, compassion. Biting our tongue, not saying something when we want to say something, not losing our cool, keeping our head. Anger is a dangerous virtue, even righteous anger. In your anger, do not sin. But when it comes to this matter of the gospel and race and how the gospel has been misused by preachers of the gospel and misbelieved by followers of Christ... And how racism has been supported and how some people are still being treated abysmally because of race. I find myself with such a calm, clear anger. I sense it is probably an anger that is somewhat reflective of the application of this text and the work of Christ in me through his word by his spirit. And I would commend a righteous anger to you as a right response to racism. Not lashing out or going online and being brave behind a keyboard where no one can see you. And not in any way being mean or nasty or horrible with your words and certainly not with your actions. No, in your anger do not sin. 
But if any change is going to come in this regard, then God's people who believe the promise of the gospel is for all nations need to have an affective internal heart shift in this regard, and that means confronting racism with the power of Christ and his gospel. I tremble that it even needs to be said. Anyone of any color or none is welcome at College Church as long as I am pastor here. Oh, the ironies of race. Did you know that we are genetically 99% the same across all so-called races? And that it is quite possible that genetically you will have more in common with an Asian person if you're white than you will have with another white person. One of the things I'm going to do at a practical level in my own life is this. Next time I'm asked to fit in a survey and it asks me to say which race I am, black, white, Asian, or other. And if I have to check one of the boxes, I'm going to check other and next to it write two words. Human being. We are all made in the image of God. Though, of course, with different cultural heritages and geographical points of origin. And when we are in Christ, there is no Greek nor Jew, there is blessing for all nations. You know, I, I don't like some of these definitions we have in church life, in ecclesiological life, in religious life. White church, Anglo church, as far as I can tell, biblically, there is no such thing. I am not a white Christian. I am in Christ. And I do not attend a white church. I am part of the body of Christ. I find myself seething with anger, internally furious, beyond anything that I felt before, the sheer heresy, for that is what it is, that the gospel of Jesus Christ has been used in this and other countries in the past, and perhaps, for all I know, in some places it still is, and at any rate, its legacy is still around to support racism. We should weep for such sin. How can the church of Christ have moral force in our day and age unless it boldly says what Genesis 12 says and what Galatians 3 says is fulfilled in Christ? That is, God's blessing for all nations through faith in Christ. So I commend to you a kind, loving, calm peaceable, but still righteous anger. If someone has grandparents who suffered under the brutalities of segregation and great-grandparents who were slaves, would they not expect their brother or sister in Christ is furious that they had to experience such awful things in their family? If you see someone being bullied at school, if you see someone not being invited to sit with you at the lunch table, if you see someone being passed over for promotion at work, if you see any of these quiet exclusions from blessing, then would you stand up and speak up? 
But while we need the boldness that comes from a righteous indignation to call people out like Paul did to Peter when he was not acting in line with the gospel, we also need love to heal wounds and bind up the brokenhearted. At one place, uh, John Perkins says that he has come to understand that true justice is wrapped in love. And when I read these accounts of ongoing prejudice, when I read the history of it that is not as old and as gone as it must one day be, what I hear most of all is pain, such pain. This is the reason why people who have experienced these wounds reach out to other answers, any answers, non-Christian answers. Some of the secular postmodern responses to these questions are so complicated they are almost ironically impossible to understand by anyone apart from the elite. Why then is there such attraction to them? Because at least those postmodern secular people are, 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 are listening. Or they, they, they seem to care. My dear brother, my dear sister, would you take the time to meet with an African American or Native American? or an Asian, or an Indian, and listen. Pick up the phone, send a text message, write an email to get together a coffee, and seek to understand the pain. When uh, recently one white Christian leader had said some things publicly that were less than sensitive on this issue, I listened to what one African-American pastor felt about it. He was so frustrated. I didn't offer any answer at that time, but I listened. I wanted him to know that I cared. I needed to seek to understand. Would you do the same? There are refugees in our building every day of the week. Would you come in one morning to the commons building and see them and talk to them and listen to them and seek to understand them? And if they are in Christ and you are in Christ, there is no you and them. There's just an us. We have a ministry now of coffee and dessert and you could just come along to that and be a part of it and make new friends. For some of us, the righteous virtue of righteous anger can become self-righteous unless we balance it with the love that must accompany truth. How do I love? Not in words alone, but in deeds and action. And that begins with coming alongside and listening and asking the hard question. You know, I once had a white elder who asked me how we could do more to reach out to an inner city community of African Americans And I asked him why he thought we were not doing more of it, and he said all he could say for himself was that he was scared, which shocked me. What was he scared of? He was scared that if he said the wrong thing, he might be accused of being racist. But you don't have to have the perfect answer. Just listen, ask questions. Say, help me understand how this might make you feel when there is some news story about race that is live at the moment. It's the gospel that's the solution to racism in our world, so that gospel must be clarified and defended against those who have misused its authority to support racism, and it must be expressed with tender mercy and love to those who are still suffering under the effects of racism and wrestling with that. 
But most of all, it must be preached. If the gospel is the solution to racism, then our most urgent response, the problem of racism in our world, is evangelism. That does not in any way mean it's the only response. We must express righteous anger as well as compassionate love and understanding. But ultimately and fundamentally what we're dealing with here is a problem of attitude, of heart, of thinking, of feeling, and yes, spirit. I don't agree with everything that Cornell West said in his book, Race Matters, but at one point he's put his finger on the deepest part of the problem. He said this, We must delve into the depths where neither liberals nor conservatives dare to tread, namely into the murky waters of despair, the eclipse of hope, the unprecedented collapse of meaning. Well, absolutely. And it is the gospel that does that. It is to this human fallenness and brokenness, to our mutual pain and fear and self-loathing, to the horrors of the past and the nightmares of the future, that we have in Christ the solution, the gospel received through faith and repentance. Let us offer then the gospel to each other and to our neighbors and to our friends. Would you repent of any expressed or unvoiced racism? Would you see it as an offense against the living God who made us all and as the denial of the gospel whose purpose is to bless all the peoples of the earth? Would you admit to God any arrogance that assumes that your race is better than other people's race, more righteous, less deserving of condemnation when the Bible tells us that all have fallen short of the glory of God? Would you ask God for mercy on his church in America that it might find a new voice to speak with clarity and compassion about the power of Christ to bless all nations? And above all, would you come to Christ in faith, trusting his promise to bless all nations, and in him find the blessing that he has promised for you and all the peoples of the earth? Let us pray. Lord God, we are sorry for any times that we have unknowingly or even consciously assume that our race is better or another race is worse. Our Lord God, um, we are sorry for thinking that the solution to racism is something other than your plan in the gospel. And we pray then, Lord, that you would give us fresh conviction of uh, the wisdom of your plan and also Lord would you as we put our trust in your word would you 
give us that blessing that you announced in Abraham increasingly. The joy, the purpose, the blessing of living as your people under your rule. Restored to a right relationship with you and now with purpose and meaning now and for all eternity. We pray, Lord, these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.